New Lands by Charles Fort. Narrated by Graham Dunlop. Edited by Darren Grimes. Introduction. Personally, as we are more wont to say in our youth than in our other ages, I find that a book with an introduction always worries me a little. I want to read the book itself, not the introduction. But for some reason I have a feeling that it is my unpleasant duty to read the introduction. Usually I decide to read the book first and the introduction afterward. But then my reading is tainted throughout by my sense of guilt, for I have learned by experience that I never do read the introduction afterward. So in time I have reached the conclusion that an introduction ought to inform the reader's mere first glance that he needn't feel guilty if he doesn't read it even afterward. Adopting this view, the author of the present introduction finds himself perfectly equipped for this task. Readers might be made much more uncomfortable if the introduction of New Lands were what such a book might conventionally expect, a professionally scientific writer, preferably an outraged practicing astronomer. A few years ago, I had one of those pleasant illnesses that permit the patient to read in bed for several days without self-reproach and I sent down to a bookstore for whatever might be available upon criminals, crimes, and criminology. Among the books brought me in response to this morbid yearning was one with the title The Book of the Damned. I opened it, not at the first page, looking for Cartouche, Jonathan Wilde, Pranzini, Lassenaire, and read the following passage. The fittest survive. What is meant by the fittest? Not the strongest, not the cleverest. Weakness and stupidity everywhere survive. There is no way of determining fitness except in that a thing does survive. Fitness, then, is only another name for survival. Finding no Guiteau or Tropman here, I let the pages slide under my fingers and stopped at this. My own pseudo-conclusion. That we've been damned by giants sound asleep, or by great scientific principles and abstractions that cannot realize themselves. That little harlots have visited their caprices upon us. That clowns with buckets of water from which they pretend to cast thousands of good-sized fishes have anathemized us for laughing disrespectfully, because as with all clowns, underlying buffoonery is the desire to be taken seriously that pale ignorances presiding over microscopes by which they cannot distinguish flesh from nostoc or fishes, spawn or fogs, that little harlots have visited their caprices upon us, that clowns with buckets of water from which they pretend to cast thousands of good-sized fishes have anathemized us for laughing disrespectfully, because as with all clowns, underlying buffoonery is the desire to be taken seriously that pale ignorances presiding over microscopes by which they cannot distinguish flesh from nostoc or fish's spawn or frog spawn have visited upon us their wan solemnities. We've been damned by corpses and skeletons and mummies which twitch and totter with pseudo-life derived from conveniences. With some astonishment, I continued to dip into the book, sounding it here and there, but did not bring up even so well-damned a sample of the bottom as Benedict Arnold. Instead, I got these. An object from which nets were suspended. Deflated balloon with its network hanging from it. A super dragnet? That something was trawling overhead? 
the birds of Baton Rouge. I think that we're fished for, that maybe we're highly esteemed by super epicures somewhere. Melenicus, that upon the wings of a super bat, he broods over this earth and over other worlds, perhaps deriving something from them, hovers on wings or wing-like appendages, or planes that are hundreds of miles from tip to tip. A super-evil thing that is exploiting us. By evil, I mean that which makes us useful. British India Company's steamer Patna, while on a voyage up the Persian Gulf. In May, 1880, on a dark night about 11.30 p.m., there suddenly appeared on each side of the ship an enormous luminous wheel, whirling around, the spokes of which seemed to brush the ship along. And although the wheel must have been some 500 or 600 yards in diameter, the spokes could be distinctly seen all the way around. I shall have to accept that, floating in the sky of this earth, there are often fields of ice as extensive as those on the Arctic Ocean, volumes of water in which many fishes and frogs, tracts of land covered with caterpillars. Black rains, red rains, the fall of a thousand tons of butter, jet black snow, pink snow, blue hailstones, hailstones flavored like oranges, punk and silk and charcoal. A race of tiny beings. They crucified cockroaches, exquisite beings. But here I turn back to the beginning and read this vigorous and astonishing book straight through, and then reread it for the pleasure it gave me in the way of its writing and in the substance of what it told. Dor should have illustrated it, I thought, or Blake. Here indeed was a brush dipped in earthquake and eclipse. Though the wildest mundane earthquakes are but earthquakes in teapots compared to what goes on in the visions conjured up before us by Mr. Charles Fort. For he deals in nightmare, not on the planetary, but on the constellational scale, and the imagination of one who staggers along after him is frequently left gasping and flaccid. Now he has followed the Book of the Damned with new lands, pointing incidentally to Mars as the San Salvador of the sky and renewing his passions for the dismayingly significant damned. Tokens and strange hints excluded by the historically mercurial acceptances of dogmatic science. Of his attack on the astronomers, it can at least be said that the literature of indignation is enriched by it. To the university-trained mind, here is wildness almost as wild as Roger Bacon's once appeared to be. Though, of course, even the layest of lay brothers must not assume that all wild science will in time become accepted law, as some of Rogers did. Retort to Mr. Fort must be left to the outraged astronomer, if indeed any astronomer could feel himself so little outraged as to offer a retort. Lay brethren are outside the quarrel and must content themselves with gratitude to a man who writes two such books as New Lands and the Book of the Damned. Gratitude for passages and pictures, moving pictures, of such cyclonic activity and dimensions that a whole new area of a reader's imagination stirs in amazement and is brought to life. Booth Tarkington Chapter 1 June 1801 A Mirage of an Unknown City It was seen for more than an hour at Ugal County, Cork, Ireland. The representation of mansions surrounded by shrubbery and white pollings, forests behind. In October, 
1796, a mirage of a walled town had been seen distinctly for half an hour at Ugal. Upon March 9th, 1797, had been seen a mirage of a walled town. February 7th, 1802, an unknown body that was seen by Fritsch of Magdeburg to cross the sun. Observatory 3-136. October 10th, 1802, an unknown dark body was seen by Fritsch rapidly crossing the sun. Compte Rendus 83-587. Between 10 and 11 o'clock, morning of October 8th, 1803, a stone fell from the sky at the town of Apt, France. About eight hours later, some persons believed that they felt an earthquake. Rept B.A., 1854-53. Upon August 11th, 1805, an explosion sound was heard at East Haddam, Connecticut. There are records of six prior sounds as if explosions that were heard at East Haddam beginning with the year 1791. But unrecorded, the sounds had attracted attention for a century and had been called the Mudus sounds by the Indians. For the best accounts of the Mudus sounds, see the American Journal Scientific, 39-339. Here, a writer tries to show the phenomena was subterranean. He says that there was no satisfactory explanation. Upon the 2nd of April, 1808, over the town of Pinarol, Piedmont, Italy, a loud sound was heard. In many places in Piedmont, an earthquake was felt. In the Rept BA 1854-68, it is said that aerial phenomena did occur, that before the explosion, luminous objects had been seen in the sky over Pinarol, and that in several of the communes in the Alps, aerial sounds, as if of innumerable stones colliding, had been heard, and that quakes had been felt. From April 2nd to April 8th, 40 shocks were recorded at Pinarol. Sounds like cannonading were heard at Barga. Upon the 18th of April, two detonations were heard at Latour, and a luminous object was seen in the sky. The supposition, or almost absolute belief of most persons, is that from the 2nd to the 18th of April, this Earth had moved far in its orbit, and was rotating so that, if one should explain that probably meteors had exploded here, it could not very well be thought that more meteors were continuing to pick out this one point upon a doubly moving planet. But something was specially related to this one local sky. Upon the 19th of April, a stone fell from the sky at Borgo San Danino, about 40 miles east of Piedmont, Rept BA 1860. Sounds like cannonading were heard almost every day in this small region. Upon the 13th of May, a red cloud such as sparks, the place of a meteoric explosion, was seen in the sky. Throughout the rest of the year, phenomena that are now listed as earthquakes occurred at Piedmont. The last occurrence of which I have record upon was January 22, 1810. February 9, 1812, two explosive sounds at East Haddam. American Journal of Science, 39-339. July 5th, 1812, one explosive sound at East Haddam. American Journal of Science, 39-339. October 28, 1812, phantom soldiers at Havara Park, near Ripley, England. Edinburgh Annual Register, 1812-2-124. When such appearances are explained by meteorologists, they are said to be displays of the Aurora Borealis. Psychic research explains variously, 
The physicists say that they are mirages of troops marching somewhere at a distance. Night of July 31st, 1813, flashes of light in the sky of Tottenham near London. Yearbook of Facts, 1853-272. The sky was clear. The flashes were attributed to a storm at Hastings, 65 miles away. We note not only that the planet Mars was in opposition at this time, July 30th, but in one of the nearest of its oppositions in the 19th century. December 28, 1813, an explosive sound at East Haddam. February 2, 1816, a quake at Lisbon. There was something in the sky. Extraordinary sounds were heard, but were attributed to flocks of birds. But six hours later, something was seen in the sky. It is said to have been a meteor, Rept B.A. 1854-106. Since the year 1788, many earthquakes or concussions that were listed as earthquakes had occurred in the town of Comrie, Perthshire, Scotland. Seventeen instances were recorded in the year 1795. Almost all records of the phenomena of Comrie start with the year 1788. But in Makara's Guide to Creef, it is said that the disturbances were recorded as far back as the year 1597. They were slight shocks, and until the occurrence upon August 13, 1816, conventional explanations, excluding all thought of relations with anything in the sky, seemed adequate enough. But in an account in the London Times, August 21, 1816, it is said that at the time of the quake of August 13th, a luminous object or a small meteor had been seen at Dunkeld near Comrie, and according to David Milne, Edin New Phil Journal 31-110, a resident of Comrie had reported a large luminous body, bent like a crescent, which stretched itself over the heavens. There was another quake in Scotland. Inverness, June 30th, 1817. It is said that hot water fell from the sky. Rept BA, 1854-112. January 6th, 1818, an unknown body that crossed the sun, according to Loft of Ipswich. Observed about three hours and a half. Core Journal Roy Inst. 5-117. Five unknown bodies that were seen upon June 26, 1819, crossing the sun, according to Gruthusen. Ansi Disc, 1860-411. Also upon this day, Pastorf saw something that he thought was a comet, which was then somewhere near the sun, but which, according to Olbers, could not have been the comet. Webb, Celestial Objects, page 40. Upon August 28, 1819, there was a violent quake at Irkutsk, Siberia. There had been two shocks upon August 22, 1813, Rept BA, 1854-101. Upon April 6, 1805, or March 25, according to the Russian calendar, two stones had fallen from the sky at Irkutsk. Rept BA, 1860-12. One of these stones is now in the South Kensington Museum, London. Another violent shock at Irk Dusk. April 7th, 1820. Rept BA, 1854-128. Unknown bodies in the sky in the year 1820. February 12th and April 27th. Comptes Rendus, 83-314. Things that marched in the sky. See Aragos, Uvras, 
11-576 or Annals de Chimie 30-417 Objects that were seen by many persons in the streets of Embram during the eclipse of September 7th, 1820 moving in straight lines, turning and retracting in the same straight lines, all of them separated by uniform spaces. Early in the year 1821, and a light shone out on the moon, a bright point of light in the lunar crater Aristarchus, which was in the dark at the time. It was seen upon the 4th and the 7th of February by Captain Cater. Anne Reg, 1821-689, and upon the 5th by Dr. Olbers, MEMS, RAS 1-159. It was a light like a star and was seen again, May 4th and May 6th, by the Reverend M. Ward and by Francis Bailey, MEMS, RAS 1-159. At Cape Town, nights... Of November 28th and 29th, 1821, again a star-like light was seen upon the moon. Phil Trans 112-237 Corjourn Roy Inst 20-417 That early in the morning of March 20th, 1822, detonations were heard at Melida, an island in the Adriatic. All day at intervals the sounds were heard. They were like cannonading, and it was supposed that they came from a vessel or from Turkish artillery practicing in some frontier village. For thirty days the detonations continued, sometimes thirty or forty, sometimes several hundred a day. Upon April 13, 1822, it seems, according to description, that clearly enough there was an explosion in the sky of Comrie and a concussion of the ground, two loud reports, one apparently over our heads and the other which followed immediately under our feet. Eden New Phil Journal, 31-119. July 15, 1822. The fall of perhaps unknown seeds from perhaps an unknown world. A great quantity of little round seeds that fell from the sky at Marienwerder, Germany. They were unknown to the inhabitants who tried to cook them, but found that boiling seemed to have no effect upon them. Wherever they came from, they were brought down by a storm, and two days later more of them fell in a storm in Silesia. It is said that these corpuscles were identified by some scientists as seeds of Gallium Spurium, but that other scientists disagreed. Later, more of them fell at Polson Meckenberg. Seabull, Desai, Math, Astro, etc., 1-1-298. August 19, 1822, a tremendous detonation at Melita, others continuing several days. October 23, 1822, two unknown dark bodies crossing the sun, observed by Pastorov. And Psi Disc 1860-411. An unknown shining thing, it was seen by Webb. May 22, 1823, near the planet Venus, Nature 14-195. More unknowns in the year 1823. Secompte, Rendu, 49-811, and Webb's Celestial Objects, page 43. February 1824, The Sounds of Melita. Upon February 11, 1824, a slight shock was felt at Urktusk, Siberia. Rept B.A., 1854-124. Upon February 18th, or according to other accounts, upon May 14th, 
A stone that weighed five pounds fell from the sky at Urkgust. Rep. B.A. 1860-70. Three severe shocks at Urkgust. March 8, 1824. Rep. B.A. 1854-124. September 1824. The sounds of Melita. At five o'clock in the morning of October 20th, 1824, a light was seen upon the dark part of the moon by Grutziusen. It disappeared. Six minutes later, it appeared again disappeared again, and then flashed intermittently until 5.30 a.m., when sunrise ended the observations. Sayamara Sup 7-2712, and upon January 22, 1825, again shone out the star-like light of Aristarchus, reported by the Reverend J.B. Emmett, Annals of Philosophy 28-338. The last sounds of Melita, of which I have record, were heard in March 1825. If these detonations did come from the sky, there was something that for at least three years was situated over or was in some other way specially related to this one small part of the Earth's surface, subversively to all supposed principles of astronomy and geodesy. It is said that to find out whether the sounds did come from the sky or not, the preacher of Melita went into underground caverns to listen. It is said that there the sounds could not be heard. Chapter 2 Prediction Confirmed Another Verification A Third Verification of Prediction Three times, in spite of its long-established sobriety, the Journal of the Franklin Institute, Volumes 106 and 107, reels with an astronomer's exhilarations. He might exult and indulge himself, and that would be no affair of ours, and in fact, we'd like to see everybody happy, perhaps. But it is out of these three chanticleerities by Professor Pliny Chase that we materialize our opinion that, so far as methods and strategies are concerned, no particular differences can be noted between astrologers and astronomers, and that both represent engulfment in dark ages. Lord Bacon pointed out that the astrologers had squirmed into prestige and emolument by shooting at marks, disregarding their misses and recording their hits with unseemly advertisement. When, in August 1878, Professor Swift and Professor Watson said that, during an eclipse of the sun, they had seen two luminous bodies that might be planets between Mercury and the sun, Professor Chase announced that, five years before, he had made a prediction and that it had been confirmed by the positions of these bodies. Three times, in capital letters, he screamed or announced, according to one's sensitiveness or prejudices, that the new planets were in the exact positions of his calculations. Professor Chase wrote that, before his time, there had been two great instances of astronomic calculation confirmed, the discovery of Neptune and the discovery of the asteroidal belt, a claim that is disingenuously worded. If by mathematical principles or by any other definite principles, there has ever been one great or little instance of astronomic discovery by means of calculations, confusion must destroy us in the introductory position that we take or expose our irresponsibility and vitiate all that follows. That our data are oppressed by a tyranny of false announcements 
that there never has been an astronomic discovery other than the observational or the accidental. In the story of the heavens, Sir Robert Ball's opinion of the discovery of Neptune is that it is a triumph unparalleled in the annals of science. He lavishes the great astronomer Le Verrier, buried for months in profound meditations. The dramatic moment, Le Verrier rises from his calculations and points to the sky. Lo! There a new planet is found. My desire is not so much to agonize over the single fraudulencies or delusions as to typify the means by which the science of astronomy has established and maintained itself. According to Le Verrier, there was a planet external to Uranus. According to Hansen, there were two. According to Airy, doubtful if there were one. One planet was found. So calculated Le Verrier in his profound meditations. Suppose two had been found. Confirmation of the brilliant computations by Hansen. None the opinion of the great astronomer, Sir George Airy. Le Verrier calculated that the hypothetic planet was at a distance from the sun, within the limits of 35 and 37.9 times this Earth's distance from the sun. The new planet was found in a position that said to be 30 times this Earth's distance from the sun. The discrepancy was so great that, in the United States, astronomers refused to accept that Neptune had been discovered by means of calculation. See such publications as the American Journal of Science of the period. Upon August 29, 1849, Dr. Babinet read to the French Academy a paper in which he showed that, by the observations of three years, the revolution of Neptune would have to be placed at 165 years. Between the limits of 207 and 233 years was the period that Le Verrier had calculated. Simultaneously, in England, Adams had calculated. Upon September 2, 1846, after he had for at least a month been charting the stars in the region toward which Adams had pointed, Professor Chalice wrote to Sir George Airy that this work would occupy his time for three more months. This indicates the extent of the region toward which Adams had pointed. The discovery of the asteroids, or, in Professor Chase's not very careful language, the discovery of the asteroidal belt as deduced from Bode's Law. We learn that Baron von Zach had formed a society of 24 astronomers to search, in accordance with Bode's Law, for a planet, and not a group, not an asteroidal belt, between Jupiter and Mars. The astronomers had organized, divided the zodiac into 24 zones, assigning each zone to an astronomer. They searched. They found not one asteroid. Seven or eight hundred are now known. Philosophical Magazine 12-62 That Piazzi, the discoverer of the first asteroid, had not been searching for a hypothetical body, as deduced from Bode's Law, but upon an investigation of his own, had been charting stars in the constellation Taurus, night of January 1st, 1801. He noticed a light that he thought had moved, and with his mind a blank, as far as asteroids and brilliant deductions were concerned, announced that he had discovered a comet. As an instance of the crafty way in which some astronomers now tell the story, see Sir Robert Ball's Story of the Heavens, page 230, the organization of the astronomers of Lilienthal but never a hint that Piazzi was not one of them, 
the search for a small planet was soon rewarded by a success that had been rendered the evening of the first day of the 19th century, memorable in astronomy. Ball tells of Piazzi's charting of the stars, and makes it appear that Piazzi had charted stars as a means of finding asteroids deductively, rewarded soon by success, whereas Piazzi had never heard of such a search, and did not know an asteroid when he saw one. This laborious and accomplished astronomer had organized an ingenious system of exploring the heavens, which was eminently calculated to discriminate a planet among the starry host. At length he was rewarded by a success, which amply compensated him for all his toil. Professor Chase, these two great instances, not of mere discovery, but of discovery by means of calculation according to him, now the subject of his supposition that he too could calculate triumphantly. The verification depended upon the accuracy of Professor Swift and Professor Watson in recording the positions of the bodies that they had announced. Sidereal Messenger, 6-84 to Professor Colbert, superintendent of Dearborn University, leader of the party by which Professor Swift was a member, says that the observations by Swift and Watson agreed, because Swift had made his observations agree with Watson's. The accusation is not that Swift had falsely announced the discovery of two unknown bodies, but that his precise determining of positions had occurred after Watson's determinations had been published. Popular Astronomy 7-13 to Professor Ashaf Hall writes that several days after the eclipse, Professor Watson told him that he had seen a luminous body near the sun, and that his declaration that he had seen two unknown bodies was not made until after Swift had been heard from. Perched upon two delusions, Professor Chase crowed his false raptures. The unknown bodies, whether they ever had been in the orbit of his calculations or not, were never seen again. So it is our expression that hosts of astronomers calculate and calculate mad, calculate and calculate and calculate, and that when one of them does point within 600 million miles, by conventional measurements, of something that is found, he is the Le Verrier of the textbooks. That the others are the Professor Chases, not of the textbooks. As to most of us, the symbols of the infinitesimal calculus humble independent thinking into the conviction that used to be enforced by drops of blood from a statue. In the farrago and conflicts of daily lives, it is relief to feel such a rapport with finality, in a religious sense or in a mathematical sense. So then, if the seeming of exactness in astronomy by either infamously or carelessly and laughingly brought about by the connivances of which Swift and Watson were accused, and if the prestige of astronomy be founded upon nothing but huge capital letters and exclamation points, or upon the disproportionality of balancing one leverrier against hundreds of chases, it may not be better that we should know this, if then to those of us who, in the religious sense, have nothing to depend upon, comes deprivation of even this last lingering seeming of foundation or seeming existence of exactness and realness, somewhere. Except that if there be nearby lands in the sky and beings from foreign worlds that visit this earth, that is a great subject, and the trash that is clogging an epoch must be cleared away. We have had a little sermon upon the insecurity of human triumphs, 
and having brought it to a climax, now seems to be the time to stop. But there is still an involved triumph, and I'd like not to have inefficiency as well as probably everything else charged against us. The discovery of Uranus. We mention this stimulus to the textbook writer's ecstasies, because out of phenomena of the planet Uranus, the Neptune triumph developed. For Richard Proctor's reasons for arguing that this discovery was not accidental, see Old and New Astronomy, page 646. Philosophical Transactions, 71-492, to a paper by Herschel, an account of a comet discovered on March 13, 1781. A year went by, and not a new astronomer in the world knew a new planet when he saw one. Then Lexel did find out that the supposed comet was a planet. Statues from which used to drip the lifeblood of a parasitic cult. Structures of parabolas from which bleed equations. As we go along, we shall develop the acceptance that astronomers might as well try to squeeze blood from images as to try to seduce symbols into conclusions. Because applicable mathematics has no more to do with planetary interactions than have statues of saints. If this denial that the calculi have place in their gravitational astronomy be accepted, the astronomers lose their supposed god. They become an unfocused priesthood. The stamina of their arrogance wilts. We begin with the next to the simplest problem in celestial mechanics. That is the formulation of the interactions of the sun and the moon and this earth. In the highest of mechanics, final, sacred mathematics, can this next to the simplest problem in so-called mathematical astronomy be solved? It cannot be solved. Every now and then somebody announces that he has solved the problem of the three bodies. But it is always an incomplete or impressionistic demonstration compounded of abstractions and ignoring the conditions of bodies in space. Over and over we shall find vacancy under supposed achievements, elaborate structures that are pretensions without foundation. Here we learn that astronomers cannot formulate the interactions of three bodies in space, but calculate anyway and publish what they call the formula of a planet that is interacting with a thousand other bodies. They explain. It will be one of our most lasting impressions of astronomers. They explain and explain and explain. The astronomers explain that, though in finer terms, the mutual effects of three planets cannot be determined. So dominant is the power of the sun that all other effects are negligible. Before the discovery of Uranus, there was no way by which the miracles of the astral magicians could be tested. They said that their formulas worked out, and external inquiry was panic-stricken at the mention of a formula. But Uranus was discovered, and the magicians were called upon to calculate his path. They did calculate, and if Uranus had moved in a regular path, I do not mean to say that astronomers or college boys have no mathematics by which to determine anything so simple. They computed the orbit of Uranus. He went somewhere else. They explained. They computed some more. They went on explaining and computing, year in and year out, and the planet Uranus kept on going somewhere else. Then they conceived of a powerful perturbing force beyond Uranus. So then that, at the distance of Uranus, the sun is not so dominant, in which case the effects of Saturn upon Uranus and Uranus upon Saturn are not so negligible. On through complexes of interactions that infinitely intensify by 
cumulativeness into a black outlook for the whole brilliant system. The paleoastronomers calculated, and for more than 50 years pointed variously at the sky. Finally, two of them, of course agreeing upon the general background of Uranus, pointed within distances that are conventionally supposed to have been about 600 millions of miles of Neptune. And now it is religiously, if not insolently, said that the discovery of Neptune was not accidental. That the test of that which is not accidental is ability to do it again. That it is within the power of anybody who does not know a hyperbola from a cosine to find out whether the astronomers are led by a cloud of rubbish by day and a pillar of Bosch by night. If by the magic of his mathematics, any astronomer could have pointed to the position of Neptune, let him point to the planet past Neptune. According to the same reasoning by which a planet past Uranus was supposed to be, a trans-Neptunian planet may be supposed to be. Neptune shows perturbations similar to those of Uranus. According to Professor Todd, there is such a planet, and it revolves around the sun once in 375 years. There are two, according to Professor Forbes, one revolving once in a thousand years and the other once in 5,000 years. See McPherson's A Century's Progress in Astronomy. It exists, according to Dr. Eric Doolittle, and revolves once in 283 years. Scientific American, 122 to 641. According to Mr. Hind, it revolves once in 1,600 years. Smithson, Missile, Calls, 2020. So then we have found out some things, and relatively to the oppressions that we felt from our opposition, they are reassuring, but also they are depressing. Because if in this existence of ours there is no prestige higher than that of astronomic science, and if that seeming of substantial renown has been achieved by a composition of bubbles, what of anything like soundness must there be to all lesser reputes and achievements? Let three bodies interact. There is no calculus by which interactions can be formulated. But there are a thousand interacting bodies in the solar system, or supposed solar system, and we find that the highest prestige in our existence is built upon the tangled assertions that there are magicians who can compute in a thousand quantities, though they cannot compute in three. Then all other so-called human triumphs or moderate successes, products of anybody's reasoning processes and labors, and what are they, if higher than them all, more academic, austere, rigorous, exact are the methods and the processes of the astronomers? What can be thought of of our whole existence, its nature and its destiny? That our existence, a thing within one solar system or supposed solar system, is a stricken thing that is muling through space, shocking able-minded, healthy systems with the sores on its sun its ghastly moons, its civilizations that are all broken out with sciences, a celestial leper holding out doddering expanses into which charitable systems drop golden comets. If it be the leprous thing that our findings seem to indicate, there is no encouragement for us to go on. We cannot discover. We can only betray new symptoms. If I be a part of such a stricken thing, I know of nothing but sickness and sores and rags to reason with. My data will be postules. My interpretations will be inflammations. Chapter 3 One Repeating Mystery, The Mystery of the Local Sky
How, if this earth be a moving earth, could anything sail to, fall to, or in any other way reach this earth, without being smashed into fine particles by the impact? This earth is supposed to rip space at a rate of about 19 miles a second. Concepts smash when one tries to visualize such an accomplishment. Now, three times over, we shall have other aspects of this one mystery of the local sky. First, we shall take up data upon the seeming relation between a region of this earth that is subject to earthquakes, or so-called earthquakes, and appearances in the sky of this especial region, and the repeating falls of objects and substances from this local sky and nowhere else at the times. We have records of quakes that occurred in Urk, Usk, Siberia, and of stones that fell from the sky to Urk, Dusk. Upon March 8th, 1829, a severe quake, preceded by clattering sounds, was felt at Urkdusk. There was something in the sky. Dr. Ehrman, the geologist, was in Urkdusk at the time, in the report of the British Association, 1854-20. It is said that, in Dr. Ehrman's opinion, that sounds that preceded the quake were in the sky. The situation at Comrie, Perthshire, is similar. A stone fell May 17, 1830, in the earthquake region around Comrie. It fell at Perth, 22 miles from Comrie. See Fletcher's List, page 100. Upon February 15, 1837, a black powder fell upon the Comrie region. Eden, New Phil, Journal 31-293. October 12, 1839, a quake at Comrie. According to the Reverend M. Walker of Comrie, the sky at the time was peculiarly strange and alarming, and appeared as if hung with a sackcloth. In Mallet's catalogue, Rept. B.A. 1854-290, it is said that throughout the month of October, shocks were felt at Comrie, sometimes slight and sometimes severe, like distant thunder or reports of artillery. The noise sometimes seemed to be high in the air and was often heard without any sensible shock. Upon the 23rd of October occurred the most violent quake in the whole series of phenomena at Comrie. See the Eden New Phil Journal, Volume 32. All data in this publication were collected by David Milne. According to the Reverend M. Maxson of Foulis Mans, ten miles from Comrie, rattling sound were heard in the sky. Preceding the shock that was felt, in volume 33, page 373 of the journal, someone who lives seven miles from Comrie is quoted, In every case, I am inclined to say that the sound proceeded not from underground. The sound seemed high in the air. Someone who lived at Gowrie, 40 miles from Comrie, is quoted, The most general opinion seems to be that the noise accompanying the concussion proceeded from above. See volume 34, page 87. Another impression of explosion overhead and concussion underneath. The noises heard first seem to be in the air, and the rumbling sound in the earth. Milne's own conclusion. It is plain that there are, connected with the earthquake shocks, sounds both in the earth and in the air, which are distinct and separate. If, upon the 23rd of October, 1839, there was a tremendous shock, not of subterranean origin, but from a great explosion in the sky of Comrie, and if this be accepted, there will be concussions somewhere else. The faults of dogmas will open. There will be seismic phenomena in science. I have a feeling of a conventional survey of the Scottish sky, vista of a fair blue vacant expanse, 
Our suspicions daub the impression with black alarms. But also do we project detonating stimulations in the fair and blue, but unoccupied and meaningless. One cannot pass this single occurrence by considering it only in itself. It is one of a long series of quakes of the earth at Comrie and the phenomena in the sky at Comrie. We have stronger evidence than the mere supposition of many persons in and near Comrie that upon October 23, 1839, something had occurred in the sky because sounds seemed to come from the sky. Milne says that clothes bleaching on the grass were entirely covered with black particles which presumably had fallen from the sky. The shocks were felt in November. In November, according to Milne, a powder-like shot fell from the sky upon Comrie and surrounding regions. In his report to the British Association, 1840, Milne, reviewing the phenomena from the year 1788, says, Occasionally there was a fall of fine black powder. January 8, 1840, sounds like cannonading at Comrie and a crackling sound in the air, according to some of the residents. Whether they were sounds of quakes or concussions that followed explosions, 247 occurrences between October 3, 1839 and February 14, 1841 are listed in the Edinburgh New Field Journal, 32-107. It looks like bombardment, and like most persistent bombardment, from somewhere, and the frequent fall from the sky of the debris of explosions. February 18, 1841, a shock and a fall of discolored rain at Comrie. Eden, New Phil, Journal 35-148. See Roper's List of Earthquakes. Year after year, and the continuance of this seeming bombardment in one small part of the sky of this earth, though I can find records only of dates and no details. However, I think I have found record of a fall from the sky of debris of an explosion, more substantial than finely powdered soot, at Creef, which is several miles from Comrie. In the American Journal, Psy 2-28-275, Professor Shepard tells of a circumstantial story of an object that looked like a lump of slag, or cinders, reported to have fallen at Creef. Scientists had refused to accept the story upon the grounds that the substance was not of true meteoric material. Professor Shepard went to Creef and investigated. He gives his opinion that possibly the object did fall from the sky. The story that he tells is that upon the night of April 23, 1855, a young woman in the home of Sir William Murray, Actorley House, Creef, saw or thought she saw a luminous object falling and picked it up, dropping it because it was hot, or because she thought it was hot. For a description in a letter, presumably from Sir William Murray, or some member of his family, see Yearbook of Facts, 1856-273. It is said that about twelve fragments of scorious matter, hot and emitting a sulfurous odor, had fallen. In Ponton's Earthquakes, page 118, it is said that upon the 8th of October 1857, there had been, in Illinois, an earthquake, preceded by a luminous appearance, described by some as a meteor and by others as vivid flashes of lightning. Though felt in Illinois, the center of the disturbance was at St. Louis, M.O. One notes the misleading and the obscuring of such wording. In all such contemporaneous accounts, there is no such indefiniteness as one description by some and another notion by others. 
Something exploded terrifically in the sky at St. Louis and shook the ground severely or violently. At 4.20 a.m. October 8, 1857, according to Tim's Yearbook of Facts, 1858-271, a blinding meteoric ball from the heavens was seen. A large and brilliant meteor shot across the heavens. St. Louis Intelligencer, October 8th. Of course, the supposed earthquake was concussion from an explosion in the sky. But our own interest is in a series that is similar to others that we have recorded. According to the New York Times, October 12th, a slight shock was said to have been felt four hours before the great concussion. And another three days before. But see Milne's catalog of destructive earthquakes. Not a mention of anything that would lead one way from safe and standardized suppositions. See Bull Size Sock Amer 3-68. Here the meteor is mentioned, but there is no mention of the preceding concussions. Time after time, in a period of about three days, concussions were felt in and around St. Louis. One of these concussions, with its sound like thunder or the roar of artillery, New York Times, October 8th, was from an explosion in the sky. If the others were of the same origin, how could detonating meteors so repeat in one small local sky, and nowhere else, if this earth be a moving body? If it be said that only by coincidence did a meteor explode over a region where there had been other quakes, here is the question. How many times can we accept that explanation as to similar series? In the Proceedings of the Society for Psychical Research, 19-144, a correspondent writes that in Hertfordshire, September 24, 1854, upon a day that was perfectly still, sky cloudless, he had heard sounds like the discharges of heavy artillery, at intervals of about two minutes, continuing several hours. Again, the mystery of the local sky. If these sounds did come from the sky, we have no data for thinking that they did. In the London Times, November 9, 1858, a correspondent writes that in Cardiganshire, Wales, he had, in the autumn of 1855, often heard sounds like the discharges of heavy artillery, two or three rapports rapidly, and then an interval of perhaps 20 minutes, also with long intervals, sometimes of days and sometimes of weeks continuing throughout the winter of 1855-56. Upon the 3rd of November, 1858, he had heard the sounds again, repeatedly, and louder than they had been three years before. In the Times, November 12th, someone else says, at Dolgali, he too had heard the mysterious phenomena on the 3rd of November. Someone else, that upon October 13th, he had heard the sounds at Swansea, the reports, as if of heavy artillery, came from the west, succeeding each other at apparently regular intervals, during the greater part of the afternoon that day. My impression was that the sounds might have proceeded from practicing at Milford, but I ascertained the following day that there had been no firing of any kind there. Correspondent to the Times, November 20th, that with little doubt the sounds were from artillery practice at Milford. He does not mention the investigation as to the sounds of October 13th, but says that there had been cannon firing upon November 3rd at Milford. Times, December 1st, that most of the sounds could be accounted for as sounds of blasting in quarries. Daily News, November 16th, that similar sounds had been heard in 1848 in New Zealand and were results of volcanic action. 
standard, November 16th, that the mysterious noise must have been from Devonport, where a sunken rock had been blown up. So with at least variety, these sounds were explained. But we learn that the series began before October 13th. Upon the evening of September 28th in the Dartmoor district at Crediton, a rumbling sound was heard. It was not supposed to be an earthquake because no vibration of the ground was felt. It was thought that there had been an explosion of gunpowder, but there had been no such terrestrial explosion. About an hour later, another explosive sound was heard. It was like all the other sounds, and in one place was thought to be distant cannonading, terrestrial cannonading. See Corps Journal Geologic Salk of London, Volume 15. Somewhere near Berezal, Bengal, were occurring just such sounds as the sounds of Cardiganshire, which were like the sounds of Melita. In the Proke Asiatic Sock of Bengal, November 1870, are published letters upon the Berezal guns. One writer says that the sounds were probably booming of the surf. Someone else points out that the sounds, usually described as explosive, were heard too far inland to be traced to such origin. A clear, calm day in December, 1871, in Nature, 53-197. Mr. G.B. Scott writes that in Bengal, he had heard a dull, muffled boom, as if a distant cannon. Single detonations, and then two or three in quicker succession. In the London Times, January 20th, 1860, several correspondents write as to a sound resembling the discharge of a gun high in the air. That was heard near Reading, Berkshire, England, January 17th, 1860. See the Times, January 24th. To say that a meteor had exploded would, at present, well enough account for this phenomena. Sounds like those that were heard in Herefordshire, September 24th, 1854, were heard later. In the English Mechanic, 100-279, it is said that upon November 9, 1862, the Rev. T. Webb, the astronomer of Hardwick, 15 miles west of Hereford, heard sounds that he attributed to gunfire at Milford Haven, about 85 miles from Hardwick. Upon August 1, 1865, Mr. Webb saw flashes upon the horizon at Hardwick and attributed them to gunfire at Tenby upon occasion of a visit by Prince Arthur. Tenby, too, is about 85 miles from Hardwick. There were another phenomena in a region centering around Hereford and Worcester. Upon October 6, 1863, there was a disturbance that is now listed as an earthquake. But in London newspapers, so many reports upon this occurrence state that a great explosion had been thought to occur, and that the earthquake was supposed to be an earthquake of subterranean origin, only after no terrestrial explosion could be heard of that the phenomena is of questionable origin. There was a similar concussion in about the same region, October 30th, 1868. Again, the shock was widely attributed to a great explosion, perhaps in London, and again was supposed to have been an earthquake when no terrestrial explosion could be heard of. Arcana of Science, 1829-196 to That near Mo, India, February 27th, 1828, fell a stone perfectly similar to the stone that fell near Allahabad in 1802, and a stone that fell near Moradabad in 1808. These towns are in the northwestern provinces of India. I've looked at specimens of these stones, and in my view they are similar. 
They are of a brownish rock, streaked and spotted with a darker brown. A stone that fell at Chandakapur in the same general region, June 6, 1838, is like them. All are as much alike as erratics that, because they are alike, geologists ascribe to the same derivation, stationary relatively to the places in which they are found. It seems acceptable that upon July 15th and 17th, 1822, and then upon a later date, unknown seeds fell from the sky to this earth. If these seeds did come from some other world, there is another mystery as well as that of repetition in a local sky of this earth. How could a volume of seeds remain in one aggregation? How could the seeds be otherwise than scattered from Norway to Patagonia, if they met in space, this earth? And if this earth can be rushing through space at a 19 miles per second? It may be that the seeds of 1822 fell again, according to Camp's Meteorology, page 465. Yellowish-brown corpuscles, some round, a few cylindrical, were found upon the ground. June, 1830, near Grisau, Silesia. Camp says that there were tubercules from roots of a well-known Silesian plant. Stock of the plant dries up. Heavy rain raises the tubercules to the ground. Persons of a low order of mentality think that the things had fallen from the sky. Upon the night of March 24, 25, 1852, a great quantity of seeds did fall from the sky in Prussia, in Heinsberg, Erxlands, and Juliers, according to M. Schwann of the University of Ligi, in a communication to the Belgium Academy of Science, La Belgique Horticole 2-319. In Comps Rendus 5-549 is Dr. Wortman's account of water that fell from the sky at Geneva. At 9 o'clock, morning of August 9, 1837, there were clouds upon the horizon, but the zenith was clear. It is not remarkable that a little rain should fall now and then from a clear sky. We shall see wherein this account is remarkable. Large drops of warm water fell in such an abundance that people were driven to shelter. The fall continued several minutes and then stopped. But then, several times during an hour, more of this warm water fell from the sky. Yearbook of Facts, 1839-262, to that upon May 31, 1838, lukewarm water in large drops fell from the sky at Geneva. Comps Rendu, 15-290, no wind and not a cloud in the sky, at 10 o'clock, morning of May 11, 1842. Warm water fell from the sky at Geneva for about six minutes. Five hours later, still no wind and no clouds, again fell warm water in large drops, falling intermediately for several minutes. In Comps Rendus 85-681 is noted a succession of falls of stones in Russia. June 12, 1863 at Boshov, Gorland. August 8, 1863 at Pilisfer, Livonia, April 12, 1864, at Nerft, Courland. Also see Fletcher's List, a stone that fell at Dolgovny, Volina, Russia, June 26, 1864. I've looked at specimens of all four of these stones and have found them all very much alike, but not of uncommon meteoric material. All grey stones, but Pilisfer is darker than the others, and in a polished specimen of nerfed, brownish specks are visible. In the Birmingham Daily Post, June 14, 1858, Dr. C. Mansfield Ingleby, a meteorologist, writes, 
During the storm on Saturday the 12th, the morning, Birmingham was visited by a shower of aerolites. Many hundreds of thousands must have fallen, some of the streets being strewn with them. Someone else writes that many pounds of the stones had been gathered from awnings, and that they had damaged greenhouses in the suburbs. In the post of the 15th, someone else writes that, according to his microscopic examinations, the supposed aerolites were only bits of the Rowley ragstone, with which Birmingham was paved, which had been washed loose by the rain. It is not often that sentiment is brought into meteorology. But in the report of the British Association, 1864-37, Dr. Phipson explains the occurrence meteorologically and with an unconscious tenderness. He says that the stones did fall from the sky, but that they had been carried in a whirlwind from Rowley, some miles from Birmingham. So we are to sentimentalize over the stones in Rowley that had been torn by unfeeling paviors from the companions of geologic ages, and exiled to the pavements of Birmingham, and then some of these little bereft companions rising in a whirlwind and travelling unerringly, if not miraculously, to rejoin the exiles. More dark companions. It is said that they were like little black stones. <laughs> they fell again from the sky two years later. In La Science, poor Tour. June 19, 1860, it is said that according to the Wolverhampton Advertiser, a great number of little black stones had fallen in a violent storm at Wolverhampton. According to all records findable by me, no such stones have ever fallen anywhere in Great Britain, except at Birmingham and Wolverhampton, which is 13 miles from Birmingham. Eight years after the second occurrence, they fell again. English Mechanic, July 31, 1868, that stones similar to, if not identical with the well-known Rowley ragstones, had fallen in Birmingham, having probably been carried from Rowley in a whirlwind. We were pleased with Dr. Phipson's story, but to tell of more of the little dark companions rising in a whirlwind and going under Ringley from Rowley to rejoin the exiles in Birmingham is overdoing. That's not sentiment, that's mawkishness. In the Birmingham Daily Post, May 30th, 1868, is published a letter from Thomas Plant, a writer and lecturer upon meteorological subjects. Mr. Plant says, I think, that for one hour, morning of May 29th, 1868, stones fell in Birmingham from the sky. His words may be interpreted in some other way, but it does not matter. The repeating falls are indication enough of what we're trying to find out. From nine to ten, meteoric stones fell in immense quantities in various parts of the town. They resembled in shape broken pieces of Rowley ragstone. In every respect, they were like the stones that fell in 1858. In the post, June 1st, Mr. Plant says that the stones of 1858 did fall from the sky and were not fragments washed out of the pavement by rain because many pounds of them had been gathered from a platform that was 20 feet above the ground. It may be that for days before and after May 29, 1868, occasional stones fell from some unknown region stationary above Birmingham. In the Post, June 2nd, a correspondent writes that, Upon the 1st of June, his niece, while walking in a field, was struck by a stone that injured her hand severely. He thinks that the stone had been thrown by some unknown person. In the post, June 4th, someone else writes that his wife, while walking down a lane upon May 24th, had been cut in the head by a stone. 
He attributes this injury to stone throwing by boys, but does not say that anyone had been seen to throw the stone. Simmons Met Mag 4-137 That according to the Birmingham Gazette, a great number of small black stones had been found in the streets of Wolverhampton, May 25, 1869, after a severe storm. It is said that the stones were precisely like those that had fallen in Birmingham the year before, and resembled rolly ragstone outwardly, but had a different appearance when broken. Chapter 4 Nevertheless, I sometimes doubt that astronomers represent a special incompetence. They remind me too much of uplifters and grocers, philanthropists, expert accountants, makers of treaties, characters in international conferences, psychic researchers, biologists. The astronomers seem to me about as capitalists seem to socialists, and about as socialists seem to capitalists. Or about as Presbyterians seem to Baptists, as Democrats seem to Republicans, or as artists of one school seem to artists of another school. If the basic fallacies, or the absence of base, in every specialization of thought, can be seen by the units of its opposition, why then we see that all supposed foundations in our whole existence are myths, and that all discussion and supposed progress are the conflicts of phantoms and the overthrow of old delusions by new delusions? Nevertheless, I am searching for some wider expression that will rationalize all of us, conceiving that what we call irrationality is our view of parts and functions out of relation to an underlying whole, an underlying something that is working out its development in terms of planets and acids and bugs, rivers and labor unions and cyclones, politicians and islands and astronomers. Perhaps we conceive of an underlying nexus in which all things in our existence are different manifestations torn by its hurricanes and quaked by the struggles of labor against capital, and then, for the sake of balance, requiring relaxations. It has its rougher hoaxes, and some of the apes and some of the priests and philosophers and warthogs are nothing short of horseplay, but the astronomers are the ironies of its less peasant-like moments, or the deliciousness of pretending to know whether a faraway star is approaching or receding and at the same time exactly predicting when a nearby comet, which is receding, will complete its approach. This is cosmic playfulness. Such pleasantries enable existence to bear its catastrophes. Shattered comets and sickened nations and the hydrogenic anguishes of the sun. And there must be astronomers for the sake of relaxations. It will be important to us that the astronomers shall not be less unfortunate in their pronouncements upon motions of the stars than they have turned out to be in other respects. Especially disagreeable to us is the doctrine that stars are variable because dark companies revolve around them. Also, we prefer to find that nothing fit for somewhat matured minds has been determined as to the stars with light companions that encircle them, or revolve with them. If silence be the only true philosophy, and if every positive assertion be a myth, we should easily find requital for our negative preferences. Professor Otto Struve was one of the highest of astronomic authorities, and the faithful attribute triumphs to him. Upon March 19, 1873, Professor Struve announced that he had discovered a companion to the star Procyon, 
That was an interesting observation, but the mere observation was not the triumph. Sometime before, Professor Ours, as credulous, if not jocular, as Newton and Leverrier and Adams, had computed the orbit of a hypothetical companion of Procyon's. Upon a chart of the stars, he had drawn a circle around Procyon. This orbit was calculated in gravitational terms, and a general theme of ours is that all such calculations are only ideal, and relate no more to stars and planets or anything else than do the spotless theories of uplifters to events that occur as spots in one wide daub of existence. Specifically, we wish to discredit this triumph of Struve's and, and ours, but in general we continue our expression that all uses of the calculus of celestial mechanics are false applications, and that this subject is for atheistic enjoyment only, and has no place in the science of astronomy, if anybody can think that there is such a science. So after great labor, or after considerable enjoyment, ours draws a circle around Procyon, and announced that that was the orbit of a companion star, exactly at the point in this circle where it should be upon March 19, 1873, Struve saw the point of light which, it may be accepted, sooner or later, someone else would see. According to Agnes Clerk, System of the Stars, page 173, over and over Struve watched the point of light and convinced himself that it moved as it should move, exactly in the calculated orbit. In Reminiscences of an Astronomer, page 138, Professor Newcomb tells the story. According to him, an American astronomer then did more than confirm Struve's observations. He not only saw, but exactly measured the supposed companion. A defect was found between the lenses of Struve's telescope. It was found that this telescope showed a similar companion, about 10 inches from every large star. It was found that the more than confirmatory determinations by the American astronomer had been upon a long well-known star. Newcomb. Every astronomic triumph is a bright light accompanied by an imbecility, which may for a while make it variable with diminishments and then be unnoticed. Priestcrafts are not merely tyrannies, they're necessities. There must be more reassuring ways of telling the story. The good priest, J. E. Gore, Studies in Astronomy, page 104, tells it safely. Not a thing except that, in the year 1873, a companion of Procyon's was, by Struve, strongly suspected. Positive assurances of the sciences, they are islands of seeming stability in a cosmic jelly. We shall eclipse the story of Algol with some modern disclosures. In all minds not convinced that earnest and devoted falsifiers are holding back development, the story, if remembered at all, will soon renew its fictitious luster. We are centers of tremors in a quaking black jelly. A bright and shining delusion looks like beaconed security. Sir Robert Ball, in The Story of the Heavens, says that the period in which Algol blinks his magnitudes is two days, 20 hours, 48 minutes, and 55 seconds. He gives the details of Professor Vogel's calculations upon a speck of light and an invisibility. It is a godlike command that out of the variations of light shall come the diameters of faint appearances and the distance and velocity of the unseeable. That the diameter of the point of light is 1,054,000 miles, and that the diameter of the imperceptibility is 825,000 miles, 
and that their centers are 3,220,000 miles apart. Orbital velocity of Algol, 26 miles a second, and the orbital velocity of the companion, 55 miles a second, should be stated 26.3 miles and 55.4 miles a second. Proctor, Old and New Astronomy, page 773. We come to a classic imposition like this, and at first we feel helpless. We are told that this thing is so. It's as if we were modes of motion and must go on, but are obstructed by an absolute bar of ultimate steel, shining in our way with an infinite polish. But all appearances are illusions. Not one with a microscope doubts this. No one with a microscope doubts this. No one who has gone specially from ordinary beliefs into minuter examination of any subject doubts this, as to his own specific experience. So then broadly, that all appearances are illusions, and that by this recognition we shall dissipate resistances, and monsters, dragons, oppressors that we shall meet in our pilgrimage. This bar-like calculation is itself a mode of motion. The static cannot absolutely resist the dynamic, because in the act of resisting it becomes itself proportionately the dynamic. We learn that modifications rusted into the steel of our opposition. The period of Algol, which Vogel carried out to a minute 55th second, was, after all, so incompetently determined that the whole imposition was nullified. Astronomical Journal 11-113 That according to Chandler, Algol and his companion do not revolve around each other merely, but revolve together around some second imperceptibility, regularly. Bull Sock Astro de France, October 1910. That M. Mora has shown that in Algol's variations there were irregularities that neither Vogel nor Chandler had accounted for. The companion of Sirius looms up to our recognition that the story must be nonsense, or worse than nonsense, or that two light comedies will now disappear behind something darker. The story of the companion of Sirius is that Professor Owers, having observed, or in his mania for a pencil and something to scribble upon, having supposed he had observed, motions of the star Sirius, had deduced the existence of a companion, and had inevitably calculated its orbit. Early in the year 1862, Alvin Clark Jr. turned his new telescope upon Sirius. And there precisely were, according to Auer's calculations, it should be he saw the companion. The story is told by Proctor, writing thirty years later, the finding of the companion in the precise position of the calculations. Proctor's statement that, in the thirty years following, the companion had conformed fairly well with the calculated orbit. According to the Annual Record of Science and Industry, 1876-18, the companion, in half the time mentioned by Proctor, had not moved in the calculated orbit. In the Astronomical Register, 15-186, there are two diagrams by Flammarion. One is the orbit of the companion, as computed by ours. The other is the orbit, according to a mean of many observations. They do not conform fairly well. They do not conform at all. I am now temporarily accepting that Flammarion and the other observing astronomers are right, and that the writers, like Proctor, who do not say that they made observations of their own, are wrong, though I have data for thinking that there is no such companion star. When Clark turned his telescope upon Sirius, 
the companion was found exactly where ours said it would be found. According to Flammarion and other astronomers, had he looked earlier or later, it would not have been in this position. Then, in the name of the one calculus that astronomers seem never to have heard of, by what circumstances could that star have been precisely where it should be when looked for? January 31st, 1862, if upon all other occasions, it would not be where it should be. Astronomical Register 1-94. A representation of Sirius, but with six small stars around him. An account by Dr. Dawes of observations by Goldschmidt upon the companion and five other small stars near Sirius. Dr. Dawes's accusation or opinion is that it scarcely seems possible that some of these other stars were not seen by Clark. If Alvin Clark saw six stars at various distances from Sirius and picked out the one that was at the required distance, as if that were the only one, he dignifies our serials with a touch of something other than comedy. For Goldschmidt's own announcement, see monthly notices RAS 23-181-243. Chapter 5 Smugness and falseness and sequences of readjusting fatalities. And yet so great is the hypnotic power of astronomic science that it can outlive its mortal blows by the simple process of forgetting them, and in general simply by denying that it can make mistakes. Upon page 245, Old and New Astronomy, Richard Proctor says, the ideas of astronomers in these questions of distance have not changed, and in the present position of astronomy, based, in such respects, on absolute demonstration, they cannot change. Sounds that have roared in the sky, and their vibrations have shaken down villages, if these be the voices of development, commanding that opinions shall change, we shall learn what will become of the proctors and their absolute demonstrations. Lights that have appeared in the sky. That they are gleams upon the armament of marching organization. There can be only one explanation of meteors. I think it is that they are shining spear points of slayers of dogmas. I point to the sky over a little town in Perthshire, Scotland. There may be a new San Salvador. It may be a new Plymouth Rock. I point to the crater Aristarchus of the moon. There, for more than a century, a lighthouse may have been signaling. Whether out of profound meditations or farrago and bewilderment, I point directly or miscellaneously, and if only a few of the multitude of data be accepted, unformulable perturbations rack in absolute sureness, and the coils of our little horizons relax their constrictions. I indicate that in these pages, which are banners in a cosmic procession, I do feel a sense of responsibility, but how to maintain any great seriousness I do not know, because still is our subject astronomical triumphs. Once upon a time there was a young man, aged 18, whose name was Jeremiah Horrocks. He was no astronomer. He was interested in astronomical subjects, but it may be that we shall agree that a young man of 18, who had not been heard of by any astronomer of his time, was an outsider. There was a transit of Venus in December 1639, but not a grown-up astronomer in the world expected it, because the not-always-great and infallible Kepler had predicated the next transit of Venus for the year 1761. 
According to Kepler, Venus would pass below the Sun in December 1639. But there was another calculation. It was by the great, but sometimes not so great, Landsberg, that in December 1639, Venus would pass over the upper part of the Sun. Jeremiah Horrocks was an outsider. He was able to reason that if Venus could not pass below the Sun, and also over the upper part of the Sun, she might take a middle course. Venus did pass over the middle part of the Sun's disk, and Horrocks reported the occurrence, having watched it. I suppose this was one of the most agreeable humiliations in the annals of busted inflations. One thinks sympathetically of the joy that went out from 17th century Philistines. The story is told to this day by the proctors in balls and newcombs. The way they tell the story of the boy who was able to conclude that something could not occupy two extremes might be intermediate, and thereby see something that no professional observer of the time saw is a triumph of absorption. That the transit of Venus in December 1639 was observed by Jeremiah Horrocks, the great astronomer. We shall make some discoveries as we go along, and some of them will be worse thought of than others. But there is a discovery here that may be of interest, the secret of immortality, that there is a mortal resistance to everything. But that the thing that can keep on incorporating or assimilating within itself, its own mortal resistances will live forever. By its absorptions, the science of astronomy perpetuates its inflations. But there have been instances of indigestion. See the New York Herald, September 16, 1909. Here, Flammarion, who probably no longer asserts any such thing, claims Dr. Cook's discovery of the North Pole as an astronomical conquest. Also, there are other ways. One suspects the treatment that Dr. Lescarbot received from Flammarion illustrates other ways. In the year 1859, it seems that Dr. Lescarbot was something of an astronomer. It seems that as far back as that, he may have known a planet when he saw one, because in an interview, he convinced Leverrier that he did know a planet when he saw one. He had at least heard of the planet Venus, because in the year 1882, he published a paper upon indications that Venus has an atmosphere, largely because of an observation, or an announcement of his, occurred the climax of Leverrier's fiascos. Prediction of an intramercurial planet that did not appear when it should appear. My suspicion is that astronomers pardonably, but frailly, had it in for Liscarbole, and that in the year 1891 came an occurrence that one of them made an opportunity. Early in the year 1891, Dr. Liscarbole announced that upon the night of January 11, 1891, he had seen a new star. At the next meeting of the French Academy, Flammarion rose, spoke briefly, and sat down without overdoing. He said that Lescarbot had discovered Saturn. If a navigator of at least 30 years' experience should announce that he had discovered an island, and if that island should turn out to be Bermuda, he would pair with Lescarbot, as Flammarion made Lescarbot appear. Even though I am a writer upon astronomical subjects myself, I think that even I should know Saturn if I should see him, at least in such a period as the year 1891, when the rings were visible. It is perhaps an incredible mistake. However, it will be agreeable to some of us to find that astronomers have committed just such almost incredible mistakes. In Cosmos 
NS 42-467, is a list of astronomers who reported unknown dark bodies that they had seen crossing the disk of the sun. La Concha, Montevideo, November 5, 1789. Kaiser, Amsterdam, November 9, 1802. Fisher, Lisbon, May 5, 1832. Huzao, Brussels, May 8, 1845. According to the Nautical Almanac, the planet Mercury did cross the disk of the sun upon those dates. It is either that the Flammarians do so punish those who see the new and the undesired, or that astronomers do discover Saturn, and do not know Mercury when they see him, and that Buckle overlooked something when he wrote that only the science of history attracts inferior minds often not fit even for clergymen. Whatever we think of Flammarion, we admire his deafness, but we shall have an English instance of the ways in which astronomy maintains itself and controls those who say that they see that which they should not see, which does seem beefy. One turns the not very attractive looking pages of the English Mechanic, 1893, casually, perhaps, at any rate, and no exceptions of sensations, glaring at one a sketch of such a botanical pathological monstrosity as a musk melon with rows of bunions on it. English Mechanic, October 20th, 1893. The reader is told by Andrew Barclay, F.R.A.S., Kilmarnock, Scotland, that this enormity is the planet Jupiter, according to the speculum of his Gregorian telescope. In the next issue of The English Mechanic, Captain Noble F.R.A.S. writes, gently enough, that if he had such a telescope, he would dispose of the optical parts for whatever they would bring, and would make a chimney cowl of the tube. English Mechanic, 1893-2-309, The planet Mars, by Andrew Barclay, a dark sphere surrounded by a thick ring of lighter material, attached to it another sphere of half its diameter, a sketch as gross and repellent to a conventionalist as the museum freak, in whose body the head of his dangling twin is embedded, its dwarfed body loping out from his side. There is a description by Mr. Barclay according to whom the main body is red and the protuberance blue. Captain Noble? Preposterous. Last straw that breaks the camel's back. Mr. Barclay comes back with some new observations upon Jupiter's lumps, and then, in the rest of the volume, is not heard from again. One reads on interested in quieter matters, and gradually forgets the controversy. English Mechanic, August 23, 1897. A gallery of monstrosities. Andrew Barclay signing himself F.R.A.S., exhibiting... The planet Jupiter, six times encircled with lumps, afflicted Mars, with his partly embedded twin reduced in size, but still a distress to all properly trained observers. The planet Saturn, shaped like a mushroom with a ring around it. Captain Noble? Mr. Barclay is not a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society, and were the game worth the candle, might be restrained by injunction from so describing himself. And upon page 362 of this volume of The English Mechanic, Captain Noble calls the whole matter a pseudo-FRAS's crazy hallucinations. List of the Fellows of the Royal Astronomical Society from June 1875 to June 1896. Barclay, Andrew, Kilmarnock, Scotland, elected February 8, 1856. 
I cannot find the list for 1897 in the libraries. Lists for 1898, Andrew Barclay's name omitted. Thou shalt not see lumps on Jupiter. Every one of Barclay's observations had something to support it. All conventional representations of Jupiter show encirclements by strings of rotundities that we are told are cloud forms. But in the Jour, BAA, December 1910, is published a paper by Dr. Downing entitled, Is Jupiter Humpy? Suggesting that various phenomena upon Jupiter agree with the idea that there are protuberances upon the planet. A common appearance said to be an illusion is Saturn as an oblong, if not mushroom-shaped. See any good index for observations upon the square-shouldered aspect of Saturn. In L'Astronomie, 1889-135, is a sketch of Mars, according to Fontana, in the year 1636. A sphere enclosed in a ring, in the center of the sphere a great protruding body, said by Fontana to have looked like a vast black cone. But whether this or that should amuse or enrage us, should be accepted or rejected, it is not for me the crux. But Andrew Barclay's own opening words are that through a conventional telescope, conventional appearances are seen, and that a telescope is tested by the conventionality of its disclosures. But there may be new optical principles, or applications, that may be to the eye in the present telescope, what once the conventional telescope was to the eye, in times when scientists refused to look at the preposterous, enraging, impossible moons of Jupiter. In the English Mechanic 33-377, Sadler says that, earnestly, he would advise Williams not to use the new edition of Smith's Cycle, because, with the exception of Volume 40, Memoirs of the Royal Astronomical Society, a more disgracefully inaccurate catalogue of double stars has never been published. If, says one astronomer to the other astronomer, you have a copy of this miserable production, sell it for waste paper. It is crammed with the most stupid errors. A new character appears. He is George F. Chambers, F.R.A.S., author of a long list of astronomical works and a tract entitled, Where Are You Going Sunday? He too is earnest. In this early correspondence, nothing ulterior is apparent, and we suppose that it is in the cause of truth that he is so earnest, says one astronomer, that the other astronomer is evidently one of those self-sufficient young men who are nothing if not abusive. But can Mr. Sadler have so soon forgotten what was done to him on a former occasion after he had slandered Admiral Smith? Chambers challenges Sadler to publish a list of, say, 50 stupid errors in the book. He quotes the opinion of the astronomer Royal that the book was worth a sterling merit. Airy versus Sadler, he says, which is it to be? We begin not very promisingly. Few excitements seem to lurk in such a subject as double stars, their colors and magnitudes. But slander and abuse are livelier, and now enters curiosity. We'd like to know what was done to Herbert Sadler. Later in the year 1876, Herbert Sadler was elected a Fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society. In monthly notices, RAS, January 1879, appears his first paper was read to the Society. Notes on the late Admiral Smith's Cycle of Celestial Objects, Volume 2, known as the Bedford Catalogue. 
With no especial vehemence, at least according to our own standards of repression, Sadler expresses himself upon some extraordinary mistakes in this work. At the meeting of the Society, May 9, 1879, there was an attack upon Sadler, and it was led by Chambers, or conducted by Chambers, who cried out that Sadler had slandered a great astronomer, and demanded that Sadler should resign. In the report of this meeting, published in the Observatory, there is not a trace of anybody's endeavors to find out whether there were errors in this book or not. Chambers ignored everything but his accusation of slander, and demanded again that Sadler should resign. In monthly notices, 39-389, the Council of the Society published regrets that it had permitted publication of Sadler's paper, which was entirely unsupported by the citation of instances upon which his judgment was founded. We find that it was Mr. Chambers who had revised and published the new edition of Smith's Cycle. And the English mechanic Chambers challenged Sadler to publish, say, 50 stupid errors, See page 451, volume 33, English Mechanic, Sadler lists just 50 stupid errors. He says that he could have listed not 50, but 250. Not trivial, but of the grossest kind. He says that in one set of 167 observations, 117 were wrong. The English Mechanic drops out of this comedy with the obvious title, but developments go on. Evidently withdrawing its regrets, the Council permitted publication of a criticism of Chambers' edition of Smith's Cycle in Monthly Notices, 40-497, and the language in this criticism by S.W. Barnum was no less interpretable as slanderous than was Sadler's. That Smith's data were either roughly approximate or grossly incorrect, and so constantly recurring that it was impossible to explain that they were ordinary errors of observation, Burnham lists 30 pages of errors. Following is a paper by E.B. Noble, who published 17 pages of instances in which, in his opinion, Mr. Burnham had been too severe. Knowing of no objection by Burnham to this reduction, we have left 13 pages of errors in one standard astronomical work, which may fairly be considered as representative of an astronomical work in general, inasmuch as it was, in the opinion of the astronomer Royal, a book of sterling merit. I think that now we have accomplished something. After this, we should all get along more familiarly and agreeably together. Thirteen pages of errors in one standard astronomical work are reassuring. There is a likable fallibility here that should make for better relations. If the astronomers were what they think they are, we might as well make squeaks of disapproval against alpine summits. As to astronomers who calculate positions of planets, of whom he was one, Newcomb, in Reminiscences of an Astronomer, says, the men who have done it are therefore, in intellect, the select few of the human race, an aristocracy above all others in this scale of being. We can never get along comfortably with such awful selectness as that. We are grateful to Mr. Sadler in the cause of more comfortable relations. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.